You saying hello to me, Shane? I noticed. Come on, don't fall down. I love half tables, except when they're not up against the wall. So I'm going to stand right here. Now, I've got some stuff that could possibly be messy. So I need you guys to stay on the seat. And not get up, please. Okay? Yes, it is. All right. Now I need to. I need you to focus on me this morning. Okay? So no more talking. And let me show you something that is very special to me. Now I don't want you to touch this. I only want to show it to you because it's very, very fragile. But it's very, very special to me. This is what? It's a little chick. It's a, it's not a real chick. This one, this one was made by a woman who is an artist and she made it look like a real chick. I wanted to bring a real chick, but then we would have a little baby chick running around the church and making poops on the floor and maybe getting hurt. And I didn't want that to happen, but I wanted to show you guys this. Where do chicks come from? Come from what? From Hawaii? Is that what you said? No, from eggs. Did you say eggs too? Right? Yeah, because they come They come from their mother, the mother hen, and then they're an egg. So let me show you. I'm going to see if I can. Shane, if you can't be quiet, I'm going to have to ask you to go sit with your mom. Okay? I need you to focus on what we're doing here. Okay? Thank you. I have an egg here. And the problem with eggs is you can't see through them very well because eggs have the shell on the outside. But this is an unfertilized egg. If this was a fertilized egg, there would actually be a baby chick growing inside. But it doesn't have a baby chick growing inside because this egg wasn't fertilized. But I want to show you the inside of the egg if I can. Okay? Have you guys ever opened up an egg before and looked inside? Have you ever cooked eggs before? Okay, so some of you have and some of you haven't. But if you crack the eggshell like that, watch what happens. I'm going to see if I can do it carefully (laughs) and not make a mess. Okay, see, I've taken off a piece of the shell, right? And you see, there's still something there. The egg stuff still doesn't come out yet because there is a little skin inside the egg and it's starting to drip. So it looks like I've torn it a little bit. But we'll see if I can get some more of the shell away without tearing open this membrane. But this is how God has created eggs. Can you see that little membrane? You see that? It's like kind of like a little skin, right? Well, once I break that membrane, then the goopy stuff starts coming out. What's the goopy stuff called? Do you know? Egg yolk. Egg yolk. That's the yellow part. Do you know what the clear part is? It's called albumin. Have you ever heard that word before? We always call it just egg white. And then the thing that's really cool about the the yolk is the yolk is what the baby chick needs to eat while it's inside the egg. 
It has all of the nutrients for the baby's body as it's starting to grow and develop. But you know what else is so cool? <clears throat> the way God created the egg is the hard shell that protects the egg, but air can pass in between the shell and the membrane. And when the baby, I mean, as the baby is forming and as the egg gets older, a little air pocket fills in between the shell and the membrane. So inside the shell, there's a little bubble of air between the, the hard shell and the membrane. And you know how I can show you? I mean, how you can see that there is one? I'll show you on this. This is a hard-boiled egg. You see this little spot on the egg right there that's kind of like a round thing and it's kind of pushed in a little bit? That's where the air pocket was when this egg was boiled. So that little air pocket that's, that was in there made uh, the, what looks like almost like a hole in the thing. But why do you think God put an air pocket in between the membrane and the shell? But it's inside the membrane. It, the air is between the membrane and the, and the baby's inside the membrane, right? Because the baby would have been inside that membrane. So how can it breathe? Huh? It would have to what? It have to pop a little hole in the membrane and breathe? Almost perfect. Let me explain to you what God did, how God created the chick. When the chick's body finally forms and it's almost ready to break out of its shell, there's a little part on the beak right there called the egg tooth. And it's literally a little piece of bone that's on the end of the baby's beak. And you know what the baby does? It hits that membrane where the pocket of air is and it breathes in that air. And then it stays one more day inside the shell. And what's happening is that little bit of air that was in the shell was enough to help the baby chick's lungs to expand so that it could finally be ready to start breathing real air. And then after one more day, then the baby chick starts using this little egg tooth from inside the shell until it starts breaking open the shell. And do you know how long, has any everybody ever seen a baby chick coming out of the egg shell before? Has anybody, have you ever done that? It can take a long, long, long time. Sometimes tick, tick, and you see the egg moving a little bit, but you don't see it. And then little tiny pieces of shell start opening up. Little tiny pieces of shell, little tiny. And finally, at some point, it opens. And the baby comes out. And the baby still is kind of stuck inside the shell a little bit. And it has to wriggle and wriggle and wriggle until finally it gets out. And then it's able to stand up. And it's a little wobbly because it's a baby. But it's able to stand up and it's breathing the air. And you know what? One of the things that we have learned as people have been doing, have been raising baby chicks. Is that sometimes the chicks start having a hard time getting out of the show. And it takes a long time. And somebody thinks, oh, well, I'll just help them. And they, they break apart a little bit of the shell to help the baby get out. And you know what happens? The baby dies. You can't help them get out of the shell. God has designed them that they have to do the work all themselves. 
If you try to help them get out of the shell, you are not helping them. You are actually hurting them. You have to let them do it. Now, there are exceptions, and we're not going to talk about that this morning. But for for the most part, when babies are in the shell, when baby chicks are in the shell, you have to just let it take however long it's going to take. And just trust that what God has put in place is going to work. Isn't that crazy? That's hard because we want to help. We want to, we want to make it better and easier for the baby chick, but we can't. Because if we do, we're actually hurting the baby chick and the baby chick might die. Now, you know what? Sometimes in our lives, we have things that are going on in our own life where maybe we want something to happen faster or we want something to be done now. And it's, and we have to just trust that God knows what God is doing. And all we can do is just pray and say, Jesus, there's a situation in my life and I need you to help me. But it's not happening the way I think it should happen. It's not happening the timing that I think it should happen. Please, 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 please. And we just have to trust him because God's perfect timing will make it come so that perfect things happen. Just like a baby chick coming out of its egg. So I want to pray with you guys and I want to excuse you to go to your class. Okay. Jesus, thank you so very much for this little example from baby chicks and eggs, how you have made a perfect design and you have made it so that people can know your plan just by looking at this and understand that that same kind of plan works in our own lives. We just have to trust even when we can't see, we have to trust that you've got everything in control and your plan is working the way you want it to work. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. Okay, you guys can head on to your class. I'm going to put this away. Hopefully it doesn't make a mess inside here. I didn't ask my wife permission to use her eggs. I know that I stole from the downstairs. I figured if I tried to take the eggs from our house, I'd get in trouble. So anyway, let me pull this out of the way. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 13 has an interesting mess at the very beginning. And uh, I'm not going to be able to do much other than just give you an understanding that there's a mess there. Um, It's just what happened. Come on, do what I tell you to do, not what you think I want you to do. There you go. So, 1 Samuel, chapter 13, verse 1. Somebody read that for me, out loud, loud and strong so everyone else can see it, can hear you. Saul was how many years old? 30, when he reigned, and he reigned for over Israel for how many years? 42. Whose Bible says something different? Go ahead. Saul lived for one year, and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men. Isn't that goofy? And 
The reality is, if you do a literal translation of the Hebrew, it literally says Saul was a one-year-old when he became king. And nobody, nobody, nobody has an explanation for what's going on there. Some people say that when scribes were transcribing the copies that we have available to us, that they left out numbers. Some people say they're talking about the fact that he'd only been serving as a king for one year. Some people say that he'd only been in right relationship with God for one year. So one, it'd only been one year since he had been anointed. We don't know. We're not going to worry about it. Just know that that's an issue and let's move on. Okay. So Psalm, I mean, Psalm 1 Samuel chapter 13 is pretty much divided into three sections. And I'm not going to take time this morning to read all 25 verses. Just know that the first section is talking about the uh, the calling of Saul, of, Sam, of Saul to let the people know that there is uh, an enemy that is formed. I get the Philistines have started massing against the um, the people, and so Saul sends out a a call for to arms, and he calls all of the people to come. Um, and it literally says in verse two and three or two that he got way too many people to respond, so he sent a lot of them home. That's basically what he said. And what scholars understand there was that he got the best of the best and kept them. And the rest, he let them go home to their tents. Um, the thing that you need to understand about the history and the culture of what's going on with this enemy that's amassing against the people of Israel is the enemy were the Philistines. And this, if, I rec- if I'm saying it correctly, this was the time of, that, that, that historians re- refer to as the Iron Age. And what that means is, The Philistines had the technology to be blacksmiths and they did not release the secret of being a blacksmith to their neighbors, the Israelites. So that meant that the Israelites, in order to have hoes or scythes or any other metal instrument for for farming, they would have to go to the Philistines to the blacksmith and purchase it from them. And when they needed repair or they needed sharpening, again, they would have to go back to the blacksmith in the Philistine villages and and do it. They were not able to do metal for themselves. How did that affect the, 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 the Israelites, especially at this time when the Philistines are now amassing as, a, as an enemy for them? They had no metal weapons. All of their weapons were wooden or stone. Okay? And so they were significantly outgunned, if you will. The Philistines had the latest technology when it came to weaponry, and the, the, uh, the Israelites had basically sticks and stones that they could throw at people or beat them with. But they didn't have equal swords or battle axes or anything along those lines. Okay? So now you understand, not only does Saul have a smaller army than the Philistines, because the Philistines have thousands upon thousands, and Saul only has about 3,000 people, but they are outgunned as well. 
So that's the dynamic of what's happening. Now let's move to verse 7. Actually, verse 8. Verse 8 of chapter 13 says, He, Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Stop. What is that talking about? Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. You'll not find it in chapter 13. What do you think that's talking about? Turn to chapter 10, verse 8. When Saul was first anointed, remember back a few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Samuel met with Saul and his attendant and then told them to come up to the sacrifice and he gave him that special piece of meat that had been reserved for the person that Samuel had told the cook, hold on to this until I call for it. And then the next day, after having Saul and his, his, his attendant spend the night at Samuel's house, he said to Samuel, Samuel said to Saul, send your attendant on, I need to talk with you privately. And then he anointed him to be king and he gave him some very specific instructions. Verse 8 is part of those instructions. Then go down before me to Gilgal and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Okay? So, now go back to 13. Verse 8. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. What scholars believe this statement is talking about is that apparently Samuel had said to Saul at the very beginning of his time as king, whenever there is a major thing going on in the world of our nation, you stay where you're at for up to seven days. And I will come and I will offer the sacrifices and I will invoke the presence of God, and I will seek God's will, and I will let you know what it is that you're supposed to do. Because if you remember, and, and it's actually after this, David, when he was king, would always come to the priest, to the high priest or whoever was the, the priest of that area, and he would say, what am I supposed to do? And then the priest would discern for David what God's will was and would say to him, do these things, okay? So that pattern had been established back when Saul was first anointed. When you become king, you are responsible for overseeing the government, but it is still my job as the priest to discern God's will for you and to give you your marching orders. Be with them, Lord, whoever it is. And so in this verse 8 of chapter 13, we're not given the instruction, but we can understand from chapter 10, verse 8, that that was the practice, okay? And one of the things you need to understand as we're doing this, as we're talking about this, is when Saul 
excuse me, when Samuel was the leader, because he was the leader of the king of, of Israel for, for 40 plus years, he was both the head of the government, if you will, and the priest. But when he anointed Saul to be king, he didn't give up his priestly role. So there was a separation between church and state, if you will, to put it into our vernacular. And so the king was not a divine king. He was simply a head of state. There was now a separation where the priest would intervene for the king and give the king the advice and give the king the guidance of what the Lord was revealing to the priest. And the king would have to work in con, con, uh, and, uh, yeah, together with, uh, conjointly with the, uh, the priest. So verse eight says in chapter 13, Saul waited the seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from Saul. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here and the peace offerings. Back it up to verse seven, verse six. Oh, just do six and seven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews even crossed the fords of the Jordan over to the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people who followed him were trembling. See, the Philistines were greater in number and power and weaponry. Saul had called the, the army. They had responded. He had selected the best of the best. He had 3,000 men, sent the rest of them home, but they were scared to death. They were literally hiding in the rocks and in the tombs. And some of them even went on the other side of the river to get away from the danger that was facing all of them. And now it says in verse 8, they were scattering from him. Not only had they been hiding, but now they were starting to disperse. So his 3,000 member army was getting smaller. And Samuel's still not here. He's supposed to be here within seven days to tell me what God wants me to do. I don't know what I'm supposed to do because, oh my goodness, the people are starting to walk away. And I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Because you remember, as we've talked over the last few weeks, Samuel, excuse me, Saul, have I lost myself? I think I have. Battery died. I want to be recorded, so. Testing, one, two, there we go. Okay, so Samuel has not arrived yet. Saul is trying desperately to do what he can to keep the people here. And he's like, uh, uh, bring the sacrifices, bring the sacrifices. Let's seek God's face. And so Saul, verse 9, brings the, has them bring the burnt offering here to him and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. Now, again, scholars will tell us it wasn't Samuel himself, I mean, Saul himself who was actually doing the sacrifice. There were people there who were doing it, but he was the officiant, if you will. And verse, verse 10 says, as soon as Saul had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came on the seventh day. See, Samuel didn't do anything wrong. He said, you wait up to seven days 
at Gilgal and I will come and I will reveal to you the will of God because I will lead the sacrifices and I will discern the will of God and then you can make your battle plans. And he had no sooner finished offering the burnt offering and behold, Samuel came Mm -hmm. and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people who were scattering from me and, and that you hadn't come within the days that you had appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines are going to come down against me at Gilgal and I'll have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. And the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. And they went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And then we'll, you can, now it starts moving into the battle and we're not going to talk about it. I wanted to focus on this inter- interchange between Samuel and Saul. Now, for those of you who have read First, First Samuel any number of times in your life, you know that in two chapters, another event's going to happen where again, Saul does something stupid and he ends up getting completely rejected as king. But this is the first of two. And we're taking them one at a time. So this is the first one that he did. And so, like I said, we'll talk about the other one in a couple weeks. But what did he do that was so wrong? Now, I'm not asking you to answer it. I just want you to think for a second. If you were in his situation, you are in charge of the group of people. It is your responsibility for their safety, for their care, for their protection, to keep them motivated, to be their rally guy, to make them motivated to go out there and fight and to win. And you were bound by an agreement with the priest that he would be there within seven days to give you guidance. And it's now the seventh day and the priest still hasn't shown up. And the people who have been scared to death from the beginning because they know they're outgunned, are starting to slowly scatter. Remember it was 3,000 and now it's down to 600. Okay, so it was down to one-fifth of the people that he had had originally. And he made a bad decision. But is it reasonable to think that you might have done the same thing? Now, I'm not, I'm not justifying this. Believe me, I'm not trying to say he did anything right. But think about what was going on in his world. He didn't know what to do, but it was on him to make a decision. It was on him to be the leader. And he had to do something, and it was falling apart. So, right or wrong, I'm going to make a decision. And he made the wrong decision. And then when he's challenged on it, he tries to weasel out of the responsibility of making the wrong decision. He's like, well, I forced myself. I didn't really want to do it, but I had no choice. (sighs) 
What I want to focus on for the rest of our time this morning is this. This mindset is very similar to what I showed the children with the chicken and the egg. It's taking a long time. It doesn't look like it's going to be successful. If I don't do something, it's going to fall apart. I got to do something. So let's at least do this. Because the next thing in this whole process is the priest is supposed to be here to tell me what to do, but he's not here. So let's just go ourselves and ask God. But see, that's where the mistake was. Because if you go back again, a number of weeks in our study of King Saul and his ministry, I mean, in his kingdom and his, his, his government, what was the one thing that God told Moses when God, when Moses were recording the first five books of the Bible? It's in the found in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17. It says, when you appoint a king, he is to do this. And what was he supposed to do? Do you guys remember? What was the king supposed to do once he became king? It had to do with the word of God. He was supposed to literally hand scribe his own personal copy of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And he was supposed to keep it by his side. And he was supposed to refer to it every single day so that he would know what he was supposed to do and what the word of God said. Now, yes, the priests still retained the priest's responsibility to discern the will of God, to bring the sacrifices, to officiate at the sacrifices, to do whatever discernment needed to be done. But it was the king's job to consult the, the, the scriptures regularly. And I submit to you that that was the biggest problem that he had. Because if you recall, Samuel made the copy and put it with the Ark of the Covenant. So Saul didn't have a copy to refer to. Saul wasn't even the one to make the copy. And that's where the mistake was made at the very beginning of Saul's reign. And that's one of the reasons why Saul struggled so much, because he just didn't know the word of God. But if you look at this um, this concept of waiting on the Lord, waiting for God's perfect timing, allowing things to process as God has ordained, this is... What I see, not just for King Saul, but for all people of God, a principle that needs to be applied. So I want to look at passages of scripture um, that specifically talk about waiting. Now, if you go and do a, a, a word search in the scriptures for, for the word wait, you're going to find way more than I'm going to share with us this morning. We're only looking at like five or six passages. But, uh, and unfortunately, they were supposed to be on the screen, but again, technology has not been our friend this morning. So I'm going to ask you to turn, please, to Psalm 62. Psalm 62, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 8. Now, one of the things I did when I was reading through this, I'm not just cherry-picking verses. I actually went and read the context 
to make sure that what the context was talking about was indeed trusting God and putting God first. So Psalm 62 verses 5 through 8. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Two things from this passage. First of all, in verse five, wait in silence. Get before God and sit quietly before him and listen. God, what is it that I need to be watching for? What is it that I need to be listening for? Because in just about every situation that you're finding yourself where you are struggling, you don't know the outcome, you don't have the process of an egg that you know that this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. But you can trust that God in his providence has it all. God sees the beginning, God sees the end, and God knows everything that has to take place in between in order to bring about God's perfect end. So our responsibility as people of God is to wait in silence. But look also at verse 8. At all times, trust in him, pouring your heart out before him. He is a refuge. So what does that mean? When you are faced with a dilemma that is beyond you, you go to him and you first sit quietly and you just listen. And then you begin to pour out your heart before him. God, I'm scared to death. These people have better weapons. They are bigger in their strength than us. I've got people who are scared to death. They're starting to scatter and I'm supposed to wait for this priest and he's not showing up and I don't know what to do. Okay. Get on your face before God and first be quiet and listen. And then once you've sat quietly and listened, and for those of you who have any, any training at all in spiritual formation, that's called centering prayer. That's getting yourself centered before God. And then finally, once you're in focus with God, begin to just pour out what's there. Don't try to edit it. Don't try to, to say, well, no, just pour out what's there. Let it come out. Speak to him about what's burdening you, your, your fears, your anxieties. He's big enough to take anything you could throw at him. Now turn to Psalm 27. 27, 14. And as funny as it was, this was not planned but this is the placard that's above our toilet in our, in our bathroom. Years ago, somebody in the church gave us this placard and I love it. And I put it right above the toilet and it's been there for 20 years and I love it. But Psalm 27, 14 says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And what I hear there 
is as you're standing there, as the fear is trying to well up, you let your heart take courage, if you will, from God. Say, God, I, I, I don't got it. I, I don't help me. And just again, as it said in the previous passage in Psalm 62, God is your rock. He is your foundation. He is your shelter. He is your refuge. And so you have come before him and you've poured out your heart to him. And then you just allow God to fill you with the strength and the courage that you don't have in and of yourself. Are they up there? Woohoo! My, my screen's not on because we didn't have slides. Psalm 37, 7 is the next one. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who's prospering in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. You see, again, God has... I hate to use this because it is such a cliche at this point. God has a perfect plan for your life. If I say those words, you go right back to little tracks or something that people leave on the, the table for the waitress. But the reality is, is God does have a perfect plan for your life. If you have submitted yourself to God and are walking in a path under his leadership, God has a plan and your job is to sit still before him and to wait patiently for God to work out that plan. And it says, fret not over the one who is prospering in it. Well, they're getting everything. They're not even serving you. These people don't have it. They look at that. They've got everything. I've got nothing. They've got everything. I should just go back over to doing on my own. I got much better chance of getting success instead of waiting on you. Been there. Been there. Look at verse Proverbs twenty, twenty-two. Do not say, "I will repay evil." Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. <laughs> Somebody did me wrong, God. I have been hurt. My family has been attacked. My livelihood has been threatened. I just want to rip their faces off. But God, I'm coming to you. Because this is beyond me. I have no, no answers that I can point to that are going to make it all right. So I come to you. Just like Pastor said, I'm going to sit quietly before you. And then I'm just going to pour out my heart before you. And I'm going to recognize you as my source, as my foundation, as my shelter, as my rock, as my refuge. I am not going to worry about any of the people around me who are better than me or doing greater than me. And I am certainly, certainly not going to dishonor you, God, by doing anything that would repay evil. That's your job. If you want to punish them, that's your business. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to focus on you. Now, all of these are great passages of scripture 
that we can put on our mirror, we can put in our pocket, we can put it on a tattoo and put it on our arm, so it's always before us. But guess what? All of these passages were written by either David or Solomon or someone who came after David. Saul didn't have any of these. Even if he had had been reading that Pentateuch, he never would have read any of this. Do you know the only passage that I could find in the Pentateuch that referred to anything like this was Exodus. No, don't turn there yet. Go ahead and bring the screen up, Craig, but don't turn there yet. Exodus 14, 14 is the only passage in all of the Pentateuch that I could find that talks about this idea of being in a bad situation and having to trust God for the outcome. And what does it say? It says, the Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Now, think about what scenarios might have been playing out when this word was spoken to the leadership of Israel. This was spoken by the Spirit of God to the leaders of Israel as they stood before the Red Sea and were being pursued by Pharaoh's army. We're gonna die. We have no place to go. We're trapped. And they're coming to kill us or bring us back into slavery. God, help us. And the words were, be still. And I will do the fighting. They could not. Go ahead and bring it back up to Exodus 14, Craig, please. They could not in their wildest dreams have believed that God was going to split the sea and they would walk across it on, on bare ground. There's no way in, in the world they could have conceived of that solution. And had they tried to pluck away the shell to make it easier to get to the solution, they never would have thought about putting barricades up and holding the water back. But by waiting and trusting and depending only on God, the miraculous happened. And they were led to safety and their enemy was completely defeated. And that word was available to Saul as he was waiting for the, for the priest to arrive. And had he had the scriptures to study, the Holy Spirit could have brought that story up to his mind in the moment of his crisis and said, Remember how I dealt with Moses and the people of Israel at the, at the edge of the Red Sea? You're facing your own Red Sea moment at this moment right now, Saul. Just stand still and trust me. I have a plan. I will work this out. Your responsibility right now is to wait. But in his panic, 
in his angst, in his frustration, in his fear, as he is seeing everything fall apart around him and the one answer hasn't arrived, he freaks out and makes a really bad choice. And the end result is he ruins the opportunity for his family to be known as King Saul's family, the dynasty of King Saul. Now, he was not removed as king immediately. As a matter of fact, he, he lived to be king through the rest of his life, literally. We'll see that in the coming weeks. But he lost. He lost greatly because of this stupid move. And so as I was meditating and praying about this for us today, I honestly don't know who this word is for. It may be for somebody who's listening online. I don't know. But if you're that one, that you're facing something that is insurmountable or beyond your abilities and beyond your knowledge and beyond your own expertise, then just put these principles in place. Sit quietly before God. And once your focus is on God and God alone, pour out your heart to him. Don't be distracted by anybody else going and what they're doing and how successful they are or not successful or if they're causing you harm. None of it. Your focus needs to be God and God alone. God, you are my source. God, you are my foundation. God, you are my my refuge. God, you are my rock. And as I stand firm on you and keep my focus on you and keep my trust in you and try hard not to do anything that would cause harm to your plan. I trust God. I trust that it will work the way you want it to work. It may not be what I think it should be. (laughs) My plan may be here and your plan may be here. But the reality is your plan will be so much better than anything I could have dreamed up. And your name will be glorified and I will be better for it. But God, help me to just wait to trust and be patient until you work out your perfect plan. And the one last thing I want to leave with us this morning as we're closing out this idea of waiting before God and trusting him is unfortunately, it says in the scriptures that to God, one day can be just like a thousand years. And a thousand years can be just like one day. Now I'm paraphrasing. But what I'm trying to help you understand is that your timeline is not God's timeline. Just because it doesn't look like it's ever going to happen doesn't mean it's not going to happen. You just need to keep your hands off of it. You just need to trust and wait and trust and wait and trust and wait until the day comes. And if it never comes in your lifetime, you still need to trust as you're crossing the Jordan. 
Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And we have committed our lives to you, but it is hard at times to keep our hands off of things. So help us, God. Help us to learn from this lesson of what it means to let go and let God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.